Lord God in heaven, speak your words of life into your people whom you love. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I have to admit, I, I was expecting kind of a thin crowd because of the camping weekend, but well done. You guys either went and came back or didn't go. Anyway, at any, in any event, you're here. That's good. Uh, the Psalms are the closest thing we have to a hymnal in the Scriptures. In fact, Luther called them the hymn book of Israel, and therefore they've become our hymn book as well. Now, the last five Psalms, 146 and 150, are these jubilant Psalms of praise and glory and triumph. And these final five are called Alleluia Psalms or praise Psalms for this reason. They each begin with Alleluia or praise the Lord, and they end with praise the Lord or Alleluia. And these Alleluia Psalms are so important that they're recited every day in the Jewish morning synagogue service. Okay? Always get one of these last five, 146 to 50. Now, the takeaway I want you to get briefly, at least at this point in the message, is that the book of Psalms ends on a definitive, resounding note of praise. Praise. Their final statement is, when it's all said and done, when push comes to shove, I will praise the Lord. I will praise him. Which brings us to Psalm 146, which is where we'll be today. So if you want to flip open in your Bible, uh, that would be wonderful. Uh, this particular psalm inspired quite a few hymns. One of them, Isaac Watts, I'll praise my maker while I breath. Any of you heard of that one? Yep. Okay, and I encourage you to Google these because there's some wonderful words in them. Uh, Isaac Watts, and I'm pretty sure Psalm 146 might have had something to do with how can I keep from singing, otherwise known as my life flows on an endless song. Uh, I would be surprised if this psalm didn't inspire that. Uh, let's read the first couple of verses. We're going to just make our way through the psalm, okay? First two verses. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Notice they both end with exclamation points. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. That open acclamation, you're, you're going to love this because we're all Southerners here. At least most of us are, I assume, if you're not a, or by transplant or because you were born here. This alleluia, this praise the Lord, it's a y'all. You all praise the Lord, or let us, if we want to be more proper, let us praise the Lord. But I prefer y'all. I prefer y'all. Y'all praise the Lord. It's a corporate call. Y'all praise the Lord. And within that communal corporate call, there's an individual resolve. And that's when it gets to Praise the Lord, O my soul, which you're familiar with that phrase. You've probably heard it. In saying, O my soul, this is a call for a wholehearted praise of the Lord. What do I mean by that? This means praising God with all of what you have, everything, your actions, your words, your thoughts, your intentions, your life, everything. It's a very holistic call to say, praise the Lord, O my soul. The call is for the entirety of our lives to speak of the glories of God. Let everything that has breath fill in the blank. Praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. With all that I am, I worship you, Lord. Now that's much harder than just words. That's harder than lip service, isn't it? Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. I will praise as long as I live. That statement in verse 2 is really emphatic. One way you could render it, to put it in kind of our modern parlance, might be, you know, I mean to praise or I mean to sing of the praises of God. So this, the psalmist is inviting us to a lifetime, I would say, or better said, a lifestyle of praise, making it our habit. Uh, one of the traditions we've had at our 
house since before Ava was born, but we do with her, is we do what are called gratefuls or thank you Jesuses. And so what we do is at the end of the day, we're putting it down for bed, we say, okay, look at your, let's look at your life, and you look at your day today, kind of watch it like a movie. See it from beginning to end. What are the things that you're grateful for? You want to say thank you Jesus for them. We typically try to go for three. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's four, sometimes it's two. But it's a practice we have of getting in the habit of praising the Lord, of being grateful. Uh, and in this psalm, what's the duration of this lifestyle of praise I'm talking about, this lifetime of praise? Well, I just answered my own question. It says, quote, as long as I live, so my life will be a testimony of praise to God beginning to end. As long as there's breath in my lungs, I will praise the Lord. That's the psalmist's resolve. He's stubborn, right? Pretty resolved over this. And I think this teaches us something. And perhaps it's this, that praising the Lord can be, in fact, a spiritual discipline. Never th- I don't always think of it in those terms, but praising the Lord can be a spiritual discipline. When strife surrounds you, right, we stubbornly lean into the praise of God. Praise has a way of changing our outlook and of empowering us in a certain way. And I would say praise is certainly a way of combating evil and spiritual darkness. Praise is very much a spiritual weapon, okay? Not to be underestimated. And this habit, this lifestyle of praise that I'm talking about, means that we live out the things that matter to God. We're going to encounter those in verses 5 through 9, so just remember that, okay? Having a habit or lifestyle of praise means that we live out the things that matter to God. We're going to come to those later on, okay? But just tuck that in your mind for the moment. Uh, 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, or there's in some translations, but do not trust in princes, in the Son of Man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now, this is kind of an abrupt shift, don't you think, from praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul, but do not trust in princes or in a son of man. It's like a record scratch almost in the flow of this. Why are princes singled out here? Okay, I'm going to tell you. I think in princes, when you think of these as just rulers, right, those in power, they come under particular scrutiny here because they're in a position to help the poor and the oppressed. Okay? They're in a position to affect change on a a grand scale. The Old Testament prophets spoke of this repeatedly. They often indicted Israel and her kings over this very issue. You see it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. Um, Also, there is a context we need to know about when the psalm was composed. It kind of speaks into uh, the meaning. Uh, By the time Psalm 146 was written, the Israelites had been taken captive by the Babylonians. They were living in exile. And Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed, no king over Israel, all that stuff. So it makes verses 3 and 4 all the more poignant and potent, doesn't it? Because no doubt Israel pined for someone to rescue them and to right wrongs. But it says, do not trust in princes. Don't trust in a son of man. Now, while we don't have princes or kings in our day and age, or at least in this country we don't, we certainly have earthly rulers, do we not? Yeah, we do. Influential, powerful people. And they're constantly in the limelight and in the media. Those people cannot save you. They cannot rescue you. Uh, I often advise people during election years to read Psalm 146 for this very reason. Because it has a leveling effect. Um, God calls us to be stone-cold realists when it comes to human leaders. Stone-cold. You cannot put biblical hope in human leaders. You can't. It's dangerous, in fact. Do not trust in them to deliver you. 
Uh, the picture we see in this psalm, uh, human leaders are not only limited in their capabilities, which God is not, right? But unlike the Lord, they can be unsteady. They can be flaky. They can change their minds on a whim sometimes. The psalm teaches us, and you'll see this again and again as we go through it, by contrast. The contrast between frail and fallible humanity and an unwavering, trustworthy God who reigns supreme. So there's lots of contrast going on here. You'll, you'll see that played out in just a moment. Um, notice the psalmist does not comment on the nature of the leader, like whether they're good or bad, good or evil. It doesn't, doesn't talk about that. The point here isn't their merits or character or lack thereof. The point is this. Human leaders return to the dust just like you and I do. Death is the great equalizer. And the psalm shows us that their plans die with them. The point being, everything human hands have made at some point will come to an end. Okay? It's a limited shelf life. The ancient Greek empire. Doubt they thought that was ever going away. And yet it did. Right? Um, same with the Romans or the Ming Dynasty. Okay? Sooner or later, every human legacy fades. Or as verse 4 says, their plans come to nothing. Humanity's plans are fleeting and transitory. It sounds a bit like Ecclesiastes when you hear it. And again, this psalm teaches us by way of contrast, reminding us of the eternal faithful nature of the Lord throughout all the generations versus ever-changing human empires. Okay? Five, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Love this verse. Things kind of turn here. Verse 5 and 4 begin to see reasons for our praise. Uh, kind of listed out. You'll see this in 5 through 9. What are some of the reasons for our praise? Well, it begins here. In contrast to the human desire to place like that ultimate trust and hope in our leaders, verse 3 and 4, we just saw that. We, we arrive here at verse 5. Blessed, some of your translations might say happy. Uh, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob. Now, this is familiar language to us, isn't it? It's well-worn. It's in the Psalms everywhere, Psalm 1, Psalm 34, 40. I mean, it's everywhere. Blessed are those who blank. And uh, did you notice that sounds a little familiar to something we call the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who, right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay? To be blessed or to be happy in this way, but I prefer blessed, it's a, it's a, I think it's a stronger term, means to be utterly contented with the Lord. Utterly contented with the Lord and what comes from his hand. Now notice what blessed and happy isn't. Is it blessed are those uh, who work really hard to obey? Is it that? What do you think? Are we blessed that we work really hard to obey? No. No. Blessed are those who go to church an awful lot. <laughs> Some would say, no, that's not being blessed. <laughs> no. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob. Look at the passive sentence structure there. God is the one doing the helping. He's the one providing the blessing. To be blessed is to receive help from God. To be blessed is to receive help from God. This is a statement about the saving works of the Lord. And help here is a really, I can't even quite capture it. It's a really strong word. It's a really sturdy word in Hebrew. It's, um, it's, it's quite amazing. And God's rescue of us, which this is speaking of, the saving works of God, should lead us back to that praise, that thankfulness, that gratitude. So, just to kind of sum up. I'm going to sum up a little bit as we go along. Our hope isn't in the rich, the powerful, the influential. Our hope isn't in politicians and businessmen and finance moguls, religious leaders, charismatic people of influence. Good or bad, they come and go. Okay? 
Our hope and our blessing is the Lord. And the subtext is this. Be careful where you put your hope. Be careful. Invest it in the right place where there's an eternal return, right? Verses 6 to 9. Uh, and this is kind of picking up mid-sentence. This is speaking of the Lord who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now, there's a lot going on there. And this is, again, continuing those reasons for praising the Lord, listing them out, okay? Verses 6 through 9, in my opinion, it's like a salvation history in miniature, isn't it? It's like a mini version of that with this laundry list of God's good works. God creates. God keeps his promises. God gives justice. God feeds the hungry. He sets captives free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up the lowly, loves the righteous, cares for the widow, the orphan, the alien. You may care to translate that as strangers or immigrants. That's fine. Uh, observe with me how God is described. you see how active he is there? God is at work. The Lord is indeed busy laboring unto restoration and redemption. Beginning with the first half of six, moving on to the second, the first half speaks of God as a creator. The psalmist believes that God is able to deliver them because he made all things, visible and invisible, the heavens, the seas, uh, all that is in them, the creator and sustainer of all life. This mighty God is contrasted over and against the transitory, ephemeral kind of human nature, right? We come and we go, we come and we go. And I love this. God remains faithful. This is the latter half of verse 6. This often reminds me of Paul. Do you remember this line when he was talking about his trial in 2 Timothy 4.16? All deserted me, dot, 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 but the Lord stood by me. Right on. God is steadfast. He is immovable in his faithfulness to us. He keeps faith. And for how long does God keep faith? Forever. Not for a long time or a really long time, or most of the time, or some of the time, for all time, forever, for all eternity. Now, want some more examples of how God is faithful? Uh, I'm so glad you asked. Just kind of scan down in the text, go from verses 7 to 9. Uh, listen to it. I mean, this paints a picture of the Lord as the champion of the oppressed, and the poor, and the prisoner, the beat down, the lame, and the sick, the widow, the orphan, the alien, the immigrant, all these. It's it's very powerful. Now, do you know any human leader who dares to actually champion all these causes? That'd be a bold move. Or if they do promise you everything, if they promise you a rose garden, are they capable of delivering? These vulnerable people groups have always, always held a special place in God's heart. Always. None of these acts of mercy and justice, these aren't new ideas to the people of faith. They're not. We see them occur again and again in the Old Testament. Take care of the widow, the orphan, the alien. There's some shorthand for you. The Lord's heart on display to a very broken world, his heart to see physical needs met, healings to occur, restoration to reign, wholeness to be known, things to be made right, that sense of shalom. Okay? Now, did you notice, as you read through verses 7 to 9, this sounds a bit familiar. Wouldn't you say this sounds an awful lot like Jesus' mission and ministry on earth in terms of what he brought 
Doesn't that sound a lot like the ministry of Jesus? Yes, it does. This is another one of those messianic prophetic moments in the Psalms. These divine acts are certainly things that Jesus fulfills in his ministry. This is the kingdom of God made manifest, reminiscent of passages like Isaiah 61 or Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord, remember this? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom, and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. How our God loves the righteous and the small. Loves them. He lifts up those who've been beat down and oppressed. The Lord watches over the sojourner. Again, you can say alien or immigrant there. He watches over the sojourner, the widow, and the orphan. And again, the Lord called Israel so many times to care for these specific people groups because they were marginalized, right? They didn't have resources of their own and they were often abused by their culture and cast out by society. They were on the outs, okay? And there's, that's probably enough about that piece. I want you to notice something in the latter half of verse 9. There's a but there, right? But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin, or he frustrates the ways of the wicked is another way to translate it. He turns their ways upside down, right? He frustrates the ways of the wicked, as a final comment on this little chunk of 7 to 9, because uh, I think this tells us a lot, an awful lot, uh, let's look at the way that the name of the Lord is, is spoken of here. There are various names for God in the Old Testament, right? There's Yahweh, there's Elohim, there's Jehovah Jireh. There's all these ways to speak of God. The way he's spoken of in 7 through 9 is Yahweh. It occurs five times, and it occurs several times in the rest of the psalm. Yahweh is a very personal name, and it is the personal name of the covenant God. Covenant God. The one who is faithful to keep his word, even when we are not. So the psalmist, I think, is most certainly reminding us of this faithful, covenant-keeping God whom we serve, which makes sense given the themes of this psalm. Verse 10. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Okay, here's what Matthew Henry has to say about this verse. Christ is set as king on the holy hill of Zion, and his kingdom shall continue in an endless glory. It cannot be destroyed by an invader. It shall not be left to a successor, either to a succeeding monarch or succeeding monarchy, but it shall stand forever. Well done, Matthew Henry. That's good. Notice the conclusion here. We end, as I said, with an alleluia. We end with a praise the Lord. They're bookends. That's how the psalm starts. That's how the psalm ends. We return to where we started, the call for the assembly to praise the Lord. Those are the final words. Y'all, praise the Lord. Alleluia. There's a call here to begin as we want to continue, as one of our bishops says. Begin as you want to continue. This is that lifestyle and lifetime of praise. Praise literally frames this psalm, right? Praise the Lord. Da, 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 da. Here's all the reasons why. Praise the Lord. So if I had to boil it down, the basic elements of this psalm at least, and this is boiling down all the way. I can't get more succinct than this. Praise the Lord. Trust and hope in him alone rather than human leaders. He's the one who sets things right. Praise the Lord. It's not a bad prayer. I do say so myself. So, I want to close with two thoughts, two observations about this psalm. First, <clears throat> uh, through this psalm, 
As I said before, the Lord beckons us to a lifestyle, a lifetime of praise. It's a chance for us to exercise some of those spiritual muscles and to practice that spiritual discipline of praise. And praise is a powerful thing in the midst of strife. So in a few moments, we're going to do the prayers of the people. Shortly after, we'll do the creed, then we'll do the prayers of the people. The first area that you'll encounter in this prayers of the people is for thanksgivings. That is purposeful, starting with thanksgivings. So here's what I'm getting at for the first point. How can your heart praise the Lord? Where have you seen God's faithfulness? Where can you return thanks? Okay? The more difficult, of, the, more difficult the season of life you're in, I would say, I'd make the case, the more important this spiritual discipline of praise becomes. And it's hard, too. Uh, the gratefuls that I spoke of earlier that we do it with our family uh, at the end of the day, you know, there have been days where it's literally been like, I, don't, I got nothing, <laughs> right? I'm trying to think of a praise, and it literally might be, Lord, I had a hamburger today, and it was really good. <laughs> there are those days, right? There are those days where literally that may be all you can come up with, but there's something about turning our hearts intentionally towards the Lord and to praise and to gratitude that is powerful. The more difficult the season of life you're in, the more important this uh, spiritual discipline of praise becomes. So the first point is, what can be great? What are you grateful for? Where have you seen God's faithfulness? Where can you return thanks? You'll have a chance to do that out loud even at the prayers of the people. Not just there, but I hope you do there. Uh, that's the first piece, okay? Uh, and I'll, I'm going to kind of back into the second piece. It, it requires some preamble. You might recall earlier that I spoke of this holistic style of praise, lifestyle, right, that we see in verses 1 and 2 this wholehearted praise of God in our lives, um, that we live out the things that matter to God. Remember I mentioned that? I said, look for verses 5 to 9, because we're going to talk about the things that matter to God and that our praise has something to do, at, do with that. Well, living out those things is part of our praise. Okay, And the things which matter the most to the Lord are laid out pretty clearly in verses 5 to 9. So, uh, while the Lord might and does intervene uh, to accomplish these things, doesn't he often use his covenant people as agents of mercy, right? Justice, healing, and so on. We're called to be the body of Jesus. That's not just a nice metaphor. Like, yeah, you're the body of Jesus. No, you're the body of Jesus, right? We are to bring the kingdom of God wherever we go. We are to bring light into dark places. We are to imitate the Lord's faithfulness by being active participants in these kingdom works that we see in verses 5 to 9. You can put it under many categories. You can say it's being missional. You can say it's doing acts of mercy. Be the hands, feet, eyes, ears of Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. True, true, true. Okay? So there's something of co-laboring, of working with the Lord in these things. We don't just go, okay, God, we've got the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, all that. Go save them. Yay. <laughs> As we sit on our hands and do nothing. No, we're invited into a kingdom work to do these very things with him. So, you're thinking, is he ever getting to a second point? I am. It's this. Second and final question. Are you more aligned with Yahweh? I'm speaking of the one in the Psalms here, right? Are you more aligned with God and his concerns for the poor and the disenfranchised and vulnerable? Or are we largely unconcerned with the vulnerable and the disenfranchised? Right? God has a special concern for these people groups. Do we? Or do we not? Uh, I would consider this food for thought and fodder for prayer. Okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
Father in heaven, Holy Spirit, would your heart transform ours? Would the heartbeat that you have become our heartbeat? Would you teach us what it means to praise even when it just seems unfathomable to us? Transform us with your praise to carry the good news into a hurting world and to live it out tangibly with our words, with our deeds, with our thoughts, with all of who we are. In the name of Christ do we pray, and only by his name do we pray. Amen.